The scriptures recognize a special group of believers characterized by the fact that they love the appearing of Jesus, and God has a specific honor for them. It's called by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness. This laurel wreath is not going to be given to every believer. It will be the special award to those who in this life have passionately loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus. The New Testament mentions five different crowns that will be awarded to believers for the various ways that they have run the race of faith. The word for crown in these verses is not a royal diadem. Rather, it's the Greek word Stephanos, describing the crown given to athletes, most notably victorious runners. It was generally referred to as a victor's crown. But the crown of righteousness, when you think about it, is the easiest to achieve because it only requires a genuine love of the Lord's appearing. You see, it's a matter of perspective and devotion. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darig. A friend wrote to me that she watched one of my videos about the second coming of Jesus, and she asked for prayer that she could find a husband before the Lord returns, because she said she has always been romantically inclined and doesn't want to miss out on marriage. As one who has been married for most of my life to the greatest husband in the world, and who has benefited from having two terrific sons and grandsons, it would be unkind for me not to pray for the happiness of young people who are hoping to find their soulmates. This world is harsh, and life is much easier when we're walking in tandem with a beloved spouse. Nevertheless, since my youth, I've also yearned for the return of the Lord because I received special revelation through dreams about the rapture. That's the catching away of believers as described in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and 1 Corinthians 15.52. Also, I was brought up on sermons about the second coming. Whether we're married or not, whether or not we have satisfying relationships in this life, as believers, as the bride of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, are we really longing for the bridegroom's appearing? Do we qualify for that special crown that will be given only to those who were watching and longing for the Lord's imminent return? The New Testament teaches that believers should be yearning for Jesus' appearing, but sadly, not every believer is going to win that victor's crown. This matter calls for self-examination, and the question is, can we truthfully say we've loved the Lord's appearing? As the world grows darker and more depraved, are we longing for Jesus' return? Or do we love this world so much that we just want everything to return to normal? Which, by the way, Bible prophecy indicates will never happen. 
There's much to consider in the New Testament about our attitude towards the Lord's return. And another question is, what does the Bible mean when it refers to the end of the age, or as the King James Version renders it, the end of the world? The end of the world means the end of this present age and the beginning of the next dispensation in time. Many theologians believe history is divided into multiple ages or dispensations, such as the Mosaic Age of Law, the Church Age of Grace, followed by a future thousand-year peaceable kingdom when Yeshua, King Messiah, rules this earth. The word dispensation is biblical and has eight occurrences in the New Testament. The current Church Age of Grace is the dispensation that ends with the second coming of Jesus as King Messiah and righteous judge. The end of the age includes a sequence of events, namely the rapture, the great tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, and the judgment of the nations. And all of these events will precede the thousand-year rule of Messiah known as the millennium. After the millennium will follow the eternal state when time as we know it will cease to exist. Now, Jesus used the phrase, the end of the age, to refer to a period which I believe is drawing nearer, when the kingdom of God will be established on earth, and when the wicked will be judged, true justice will finally reign. In fact, Yeshua referred to the end of the age a number of times in Matthew chapter 13 when he explained the meaning of some of his parables. The word age in these parables is Eon, meaning a long period of time. The end of the age is associated with separation, sorting, and fire. Of course, all of that doesn't please modern ears, because today everything is about inclusion. But in Matthew 13.40, Jesus warned in his parable of the wheat and the tares of a future judgment in which the weeds will be pulled up and burned in fire. This universal weeding will happen at the end of the age, at the end of the eon. Jesus also likened the kingdom of heaven to a dragnet. In Matthew 13, 48, fishermen collected the good fish out of a dragnet, but discarded the bad fish. And likewise, Jesus said the angels will separate the wicked individuals from the righteous and throw the wicked into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, Yeshua said, is how the end of the age will unfold. Well, in Matthew 24, the disciples of Jesus came to him with a question about the end of the age. They asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Yeshua consequently gave them his end-time briefing, known as the Olivet Discourse. Specifically, it relates to the nation of Israel. He taught that the end of the age will be full of great calamities for rebels, and judgment will fall swiftly and with finality. But for the children of God who are alive at that time, the end of the age will be a time of great deliverance and salvation. 
By careful study of the Lord's Olivet Discourse, we learn that his physical return to earth will occur after much trial and tribulation. His bodily return will be accompanied by signs of upheaval in the universe. The sun, moon, and stars will be disturbed. And then, according to Matthew 24, 30, his coming will be visible to all people, causing them to mourn, weep, and wail because they will realize they were obstinate, unbelieving rebels against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's important to note that the one age or dispensation leads to another. In Matthew 12, 32, Jesus spoke of both this age and the age to come. He said, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This dispensation, the church age of grace, which is extended to all nations, is rapidly winding up. Everybody is called now to repent of their sins and turn to the one and only Savior for salvation. In God's mercy, this present age has lasted for 2,000 years because, as the Apostle Peter explained, God is being patient with us. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. However, this present age will not last indefinitely. And when the fullness of the Gentiles is finally gathered into the church, then the kingdom will be swiftly restored to Israel. And a far more glorious age will begin called the millennium, consisting of a thousand years of righteous rule by Messiah. Until then, the New Testament teaches, now is the day of salvation. And that's why repentance should never be delayed. The age of grace could end at any moment due to the New Testament doctrine called the rapture, when the church will be completed and then snatched to heaven. Although these are difficult days like the days of Noah and the time of Sodom, believers have the Lord's promise that he will never forsake us, no matter what happens. And in Matthew 28, 20, he promised, Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, the parables of Jesus are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. The Hebrew word mashal, parable, can also refer to a riddle. The rabbis love riddles, acrostics and gematria, which is a practice of assigning a numerical value to a name, word, or phrase. Incidentally, gematria is how the number of the name of the future Antichrist will be calculated. In all times in their history, the Jewish people were familiar with parables, in the Hebrew Bible, a famous example is the parable of the ewe lamp. The prophet Nathan told this parable to King David as a rebuke for David's adultery with Bathsheba. Parables were also used by the rabbis who were contemporaries with Yeshua. Our pastor at Jerusalem's Christ Church, David Pelagi, says we should pay special attention to Jesus' parables to remind us that the Lord loved his own people, he loved Jerusalem, and he loved the temple. Yet, he called his people to repentance. The parables at the end of Gospel 
of Matthew apply to the last judgment, the end of the world, and the return of the Lord. It's certainly true that Yeshua is coming back, and there will be a final judgment for which everyone should be watching and ready. But these parables can speak on another level about being ready for the end of our lives when we will stand before God and hopefully hear the Lord's commendation, well done, good, and faithful servant. Well, Yeshua has a reputation in the world of being meek and mild, but the New Testament actually paints a more balanced picture of him. In the pages of the New Testament, we discover that Jesus is not only compassionate, but he holds us accountable for sin. In fact, he spent much of his time teaching about the dangers of sin and judgment. His parable of the great banquet is told in two versions in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. A king gives a banquet or a wedding feast. An urgent invitation is issued. But people begin to make all sorts of excuses. And so those who reject the king's invitation end up being punished and cast into outer darkness. This may sound harsh to modern soft ears, but the Lord's end-time parables forewarn us that we are destined to stand in front of the living God. And the question remains, are we ready? Repentance was the main topic of the Bible prophets. John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus were preachers of repentance. And it's our challenge to practice a lifestyle of repentance. Daily, we should acknowledge any faults or sins and turn away from wrongdoing. And we believers need to ask ourselves, is the Lord Jesus more in control of our lives today than he was, say, a year ago, five years ago? If not, the kingdom of God and the rulership of God is not advancing in our lives. Interestingly, there are no parables in John's gospel. They're all found in the three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about 33 parables in all. But today, I want especially to recapitulate the parable that Jesus said his followers must learn. In Matthew 24, 32, Jesus said, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. He said, When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. Even so, you too, when you hear all of these things, the signs of his coming, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, Jesus added, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, he said, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. To remind his people to be ready for his return, Yeshua chose this parable of the fig tree. And you may recall that as a divine judgment under his withering command, a fig tree on the Mount of Olives had miraculously dried up from its roots because it did not bear any visible fruit. The withering of the fig tree actually happened toward the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And it was a parable to be observed and carefully watched. He said the revival of the fig tree would be a prophetic end-time sign. Remember, he said, when you see the fig tree blossom, 
know that summer is near. Likewise, when you see all these things coming to pass, wars, earthquakes, seaquakes, tsunamis, pestilences, and so forth, know that the Lord's return is near, even at the doors. And Jesus added dramatically, Truly I say unto you, this generation that sees these things shall not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. So I ask, has the fig tree blossomed again? Yes, indeed it has. Israel withered after their rejection of Jesus. But Israel, hallelujah, has budded once again, coming back to life on May 14th, 1948. And this is the generation that witnessed it. Therefore, every believer must be watchful for the Lord's imminent coming. We have to be ready. He said we can't know the day, but we must watch and be ready. And by continuing day by day to do our Father's will, just like he faithfully came to do his Father's will. I like the analogy of watching for the Lord's return being compared to preparing your house to be put on the market. When you put your house on the market, it has to look its best. It has to be neat and tidy because the realtors can call at any time with a potential buyer. The owners have to be ready to show the house in tip-top condition, presentable, because you don't know when a potential buyer will come. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Let's keep our lives, let's keep our house in order. That's how we carefully watch and prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. Due to God's mercy and forbearance, the age of grace has continued for a very long time. But when the time for judgment finally arrives, events will be wrapped up quickly. The fact that God will draw history to a quick close is echoed in many other passages of Scripture, including Revelation 3.11 where Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that nobody takes your crown. In the meantime, until the Lord comes, we are to occupy this world meaningfully. I agree with many of my Orthodox Jewish friends in Israel that the progressive agenda has become one of the greatest threats to biblical values that have been honored for centuries by the Judeo-Christian world. Despite allowing abortion, nevertheless, Israel is increasingly becoming a most family-oriented country. In many Western countries, the birth rate is steadily declining below replacement level. In nations, for example, such as Japan, while in Israel, the birth rate is holding steady and continues to rise in some religious sections. It's well known that religious families in Israel produce many children, but even secular families are having at least three children, and that's up from an average of two children just a few decades ago. In many ways, Israel is a child's paradise. Children truly are catered for. Playgrounds and play centers are public places in Israel. Daycare is publicly funded from three months of age. And mothers are granted maternity leave, enabling them to have many children without fear of losing their jobs. In the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria, family is even more central. Young families move to new communities in Judea and Samaria, seeking to be near many other 
young families like themselves. Parents know they will easily find and befriend other young parents at the local playgrounds, and the synagogues cater to families in many ways. Grandparents are an, an integral part of Israeli life as well. And that's how it should be. One of my Orthodox Jewish friends said, Our families strengthen us. They anchor us in our identities and in our beliefs. It's no coincidence that the Bible opens with Genesis, a book about families, and particularly about the first family of Israel who became the nation of Israel. So let's keep this family-centric concept in mind as we view the changing world all around us. Let's purpose to strengthen our own families as we look after our children and grandchildren and help to create better spaces for them to grow and develop, especially being nurtured by biblical values in strong, biblically-based communities, as well as faith-based private schools. We may not be able to fight the onslaught of progressive values, but together we may be able to shield our families from the onslaught. Well, in order to wrap up today's program responsibly, I want our viewers to be sure that they know the definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is so vitally important. Many believers speak about Jesus and mention the gospel, but I wonder, can they actually define it? Actually, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah is not complicated. It's stated very clearly by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 3 to 4. He wrote, I declare to you the gospel which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul outlined for us the gospel in three simple historical facts. Number one, Messiah died for our sins. Two, he was buried. Three, he was raised again on the third day. A lot of so-called gospel preaching never actually contains these historical facts. But we have to take hold of these vital facts. That the Messiah died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day. Paul goes on in the next verses to list the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But I want to note that he based the gospel authority, first of all, not on eyewitnesses, but on the scriptures. He said Christ died for us according to what? The scriptures. And he was buried and raised from the dead according to what? The scriptures. The scriptures are the ultimate authority. Only then does Paul go on to list various eyewitnesses of the Lord's resurrection from the Apostle Peter to up to 500 eyewitnesses who saw the Lord all at one time. The final authority in all matters of faith is the scriptures. Now, elsewhere in 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul also wrote, Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This, he said, is the good news I preach. So the substance of the gospel includes not only the Lord's resurrection, but that he was the legitimate Messiah descended, as prophesied, from King David. That's vital in establishing the Lord's messianic identity. Now, Paul goes on to explain that in order to be saved, the gospel requires faith. 
Faith causes righteousness to be imputed to us. I think it's startling for many religious people to understand that salvation is not by works, but rather it's by faith. Concerning Abraham, Paul explains in Romans chapter 4 that righteousness was imputed to Abraham because of his what? Because of his faith. It's a stumbling stone for religious people to believe that they must earn God's favor. Favor can't be earned if you want to be reckoned righteous by God. Faith in the Savior is required. That's an astonishing statement to many people, yet it's exactly what the Bible teaches and requires. Saving grace is free. We receive grace freely from the Lord. We can't earn it. But once we have received grace, it imposes obligations on us. It's not cheap. Saving grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. To sum up, what motivates us to live differently from sinners? I think if we search the New Testament, we'll discover that nearly all of the appeals to holy living are related to the anticipation of the Lord's return. And wherever the church is not speaking or preaching about or longing for the Lord's return, you can almost guarantee that the standards of holiness will not match those of the Bible. Well, presently as I speak, the door of salvation is still open. There's still room to humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and to be saved by the merits of the Savior. You can receive from Jesus the free gift of eternal life. The transhumanists can't give you eternal life, even though they're trying to seek it. And a Bible written by artificial intelligence can't offer you the blessed hope. Soon Jesus will have returned and it will be too late to receive him. It's important to invite the Savior into your life now and then he will guide you safely through these troublesome times. Despite the disappointments we see in people's corrupt and depraved behavior, the joy of the Lord will be our strength and we won't despair about what's coming upon this world because we'll have the assurance that King Jesus is coming to rule and to save this benighted planet. You could be suffering from economic problems or you could be suffering from agonizing family problems, but no believer should ever be without hope. Let me draw your attention to our website, exploits.tv, which continually reports on Bible prophecy and end-time events as they relate to the church and Israel. And we invite you to sign up for our weekly email alert and at the Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, you can watch our library of videos available 24-7. Friends, the kingdom of God is at hand. The sound of the shofar reminds us the great day of the Lord is drawing near, and soon we'll see King Yeshua. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me on social media. And so until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. May the grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Shalom. I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha.
A new day begins over Jerusalem's Western Wall Plaza, where Jews and Christians from all over the world gather to worship, pray, and petition the God of Israel. The Holy City is a unique mix of tradition, history, and religious fervor that makes it the center of the world. Through your support of the Jerusalem Channel, we're able to present to a global audience a spiritual insight into the Bible and Bible prophecy that will impact your life. Thank you for being part of these programs. To make a gift, visit our website at jerusalemchannel.tv or download our free Jerusalem Channel app where you can donate by credit or debit card. Celebrate with us this ancient capital that will one day soon be the worship center of the Messiah.